and good morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Always great to be together as a church family this morning, both in the YMCA and online, as we rebuild the habits of worshiping and serving together on Sunday morning. Whether you are cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. We are looking forward to Community Serve Day, July 11th. We will be worshiping that day by serving in the community instead of being in this here fine gym or in your fine living room. That'll be great. Well, we're getting into the heat of summer. The heat of summer always brings back fond childhood memories for me. Uh, Sitting outside on humid Memphis nights, swatting mosquitoes, eating watermelon, Don't swallow those seeds, my grandfather would say, or a watermelon will grow in your stomach. Now, my grandfather was not a board-certified doctor, but as a little kid, I took his words to heart. I mean, that's, that's deep thoughts, right? How can something so little become something so big? How does a watermelon come from a watermelon seed? Something so small you can swallow it could become something so big it will explode your five-year-old stomach. These are deep thoughts to think about while you're swatting mosquitoes. The truth is these are still deep thoughts to think about. It is possible for us to become accustomed to the wonder of the world. The wonder that watermelons come from watermelon seeds and that trees come from seeds. In fact, that all kinds of complex things like humans and like hope come from itty-bitty origins. There is a great power in the itty-bitty. There is a great wonder in the itty-bitty. And that's the turn we're making today. We're continuing a year-long series of sermons called The Story with a capital S. We're looking at the big picture of the Bible, that from the beginning of time, God has been writing a great story in this world. He invites you and me to find our place in it. We have resources to help you with that, from reading plans to videos to make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating. You'll find them in our weekly email we send out or at lakeforest.org slash LFCD, the story. If you are behind on the reading plan, if this is your first Sunday, the resources are there for your benefit. So just pick up wherever you are and make the Bible a little less big, a little less intimidating. In review of the story thus far, In the beginning, God created the world. God created humanity in his own image. And yet, humanity, you and I, have not chosen a close relationship with God. Instead, we have chosen to rebel against God. In response to humanity's rebellion, God has promised that he's going to bless all peoples through the family of Abraham and Sarah. Now, that family grew so large that it became a people, the Hebrew people, which unified together into a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. But now that kingdom is in trouble. In fact, that kingdom is divided. It's become two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Both of them are losing sight of who God called them to be. So once the kingdom divides, the Bible's focus shifts to prophets. Prophets. Prophets are God's appointed watchdogs against idolatry and injustice. 
God's appointed watchdogs against idolatry and injustice. And God keeps sending prophet after prophet after prophet to point the people back to him. They say, turn away from other little gods, turn away from harming the most vulnerable, and return to God. Return to God's ways. Return to God's mercy. Worship God. Return to God and to God's ways and to God's mercy. Worship God. This is the message of the prophets for centuries. Today we're going to look at the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah. Now Isaiah is both a prophet and a book of the Bible. It is in fact the book of the the prophetic book most quoted in the New Testament. Now the prophetic books of the Bible can be confusing because sometimes they're writing about past events, sometimes they're writing about their own current events, sometimes they're writing about future events, and they don't always specify which one they're doing. And sometimes they'll use a symbol or a word to refer to past, present, and future simultaneously. They can be a little confusing. But what the prophets did is they received guidance and direction from God and they wrote it down, even if they didn't always understand what it meant. The prophetic books are sometimes like looking at a police sketch and not always a very clear police sketch. But then you see the suspect, then you see some of the events in the book transpire, and you realize the sketch was actually telling you more than you first realized. This is actually an actual police sketch that actually led to the uh, arrest of the man you see on the right. Sometimes, even when you don't totally know what you're looking at, once you see the thing it's describing, you say, oh, okay, it was telling me more than I first realized. Today we want to look at a passage that's often called the Suffering Servant Passage. The Suffering Servant Passage from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. The passage we're looking at today is often described as what? The Suffering Servant, they said. This is the Suffering Servant. Jacob read part of this for us earlier. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend a lot of time putting the Suffering Servant in its context Then we're going to talk a little bit about the passage called the Suffering Servant. And then we are going to look at a way that God used that passage that Isaiah could have never imagined. So Isaiah begins his book not with a joke, not with a relatable personal story about eating watermelon. He starts his book with harsh words for God's people for the divided kingdom. He tells them they are tarnished people, they have no regard for the Lord and no regard for the poor. And so, a time of testing is about to come. There's going to be a time of purification, a time of refinement. Like precious metals are refined, God's people are going to be refined by fire. But on the other side of the refinement, there will come a day where all the peoples of the world will stream into God's holy city, the new Jerusalem, Yeah, that will be a home for all who worship God. So Isaiah's book is about what is tarnished, being refined, and made new. Tarnished, refined, new. Or if you prefer, not good, hard, good. Have you ever been in that cycle? Tarnished, refined, new. Not good, hard, good. My guess is we're all somewhere in that cycle today. That's the book of Isaiah. For 66 chapters, he keeps moving between tarnished, refined, new. Not good, 
hard good. So what's this refining thing Isaiah keeps talking about? For God's people at that time, it is going to be the exile. The exile. God is about to allow some bigger countries to come in and conquer his people, conquer the divided kingdom, burning most of it to the ground, and shipping most of the people off into these larger empires. It's called the exile. The exile can get confusing, and so I will simply tell you the exile is as easy as ABP. ABP. Assyria conquers the people. Babylon conquers Assyria. Persia conquers Babylon. And then Persia lets a lot of the people come back and rebuild. That'll happen in July. But it's as easy as ABP. <laughs> the easiest ABP. Assyria, Babylon, Persia. ABP. So when you hear the Bible start talking about Assyria, Babylon, Persia, that's often part of the exile. When the people have been conquered, burned, the, their, everything was burned to the ground, the temple was burned to the ground. And they get sent off to these different empires. Here's how God describes the exile in Isaiah, Isaiah 6. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So Assyria is going to come in. They're going to conquer God's people. They're going to disperse God's people throughout their empire. And it's going to look like Assyria just took an axe to everything that God's been doing. It's actually going to look like God's taken an axe to his own plan and promises. God's plan was once a great and mighty oak, and now it's going to be reduced to a stump. And God says, don't be deceived by that. That stump contains a holy seed through which something amazing is going to happen. The book of Isaiah, then, is almost like a love letter. It's almost like a letter of encouragement from God to all of us, saying there's always reason for hope. Even if it's just itty-bitty, there's always reason for hope. God makes watermelons and humans out of itty-bitty origins. Maybe that's how God will also make hope and purpose in our lives. Out of itty-bitty, unexpected origins. Because the exile does not thwart God's plan. It does not thwart God's promises. God's plan and God's promises are going to press on. God will continue to work through whatever little itty-bitty remnant of people still want to love Him and walk in His ways. There is always reason for hope. So wherever you are in the cycle of tarnished, refined, new, or not good, hard, good, wherever you are in that cycle, there is always reason for hope. Isaiah is God's message of love to you, his message of encouragement to you, that you are not alone, that God desires to be with his people, that God is for you. God's not against you. God desires more for you. And whatever you're in the midst of right now, God will use it to draw you closer to Him, draw you closer to the hope and the purpose that He has for you. Even if life looks like a stump, there's always reason for hope. Back to that stump, Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. This is when Isaiah starts to become something of a police sketch artist. He's about to start sketching out a figure to the extent that God will reveal this figure to him. He says a shoot is going to come out of the stump. So exile is going to seem like God took an axe to all his plans and promises. But hold on, look, there's an itty-bitty shoot coming out of that stump. 
Give the shoot time, and it may grow into something even more wonderful than the tree that was cut down in the first place. But who is this shoot, and what is the stump of Jesse, other than an excellent name for a middle school band? If you're a middle schooler looking for a band name, that's free. The stump of Jesse. Well, if you were here for volume four of the story, you may remember King David's father is named Jesse. And so God promised King David, the son of Jesse, that one of his descendants would lead an eternal kingdom from an eternal throne. And this coming king who would lead the eternal kingdom from the eternal throne came to be called the Messiah. The Messiah is God's promised deliverer. The Messiah is the leader of the eternal kingdom. Messiah literally means the anointed one, that in that time kings would be anointed to symbolize they were the king. So this is the king, the anointed one, the Messiah. Exile seems like God's taken an ax to all his plans and promises, but hold on, there's that itty-bitty flickering hope of a Messiah that's going to sustain us through the exile, that's going to sustain us through the hard part of the cycle. And so Isaiah begins to sketch out this Messiah throughout the rest of his book. Isaiah 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So some of that sounds familiar. That's the definition of what the Messiah is. This passage also tells us that the Messiah will come to us as a child. That's no surprise. Most people do. But then it also says that this child will grow up to be called Mighty God and that that somehow won't be blasphemy. How can a person rightly be called God and rightly be called a child? Isaiah has a tough job. It's hard to describe someone you've never seen before. But he was the faithful prophet, and he wrote it down. The Messiah will be rightly called a child and rightly called a mighty God. Okay. Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. So our main passage for this morning is called the suffering servant. But part of my point is there are more servant passages in Isaiah than just the suffering servant passage. Now, I can tell you're a little nervous. I haven't actually gotten to the passage for this morning, and I'm this deep in the sermon. There's no way we're going to get out before the Methodists today, and we're going to have to wait at the Denny's. But there are multiple servant passages in Isaiah. This servant passage emphasizes, this Isaiah 42 emphasizes the Messiah will be filled with God's Spirit, the Messiah will be resolute in His mission, and yet the Messiah will be so tender with those who are struggling and shattered. 
and that He and His teachings will bring hope to even the most remote islands. Isaiah 50, for who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of His servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. Another servant passage. So what will the servant do? The servant is going to call people out of darkness. The servant's mission will be to find those who are far from God, who are living only in shadows, and call them to trust in the Lord, to rely on God as the source of their hope and purpose. Well, this gets us to maybe Isaiah's most famous sketch of the Messiah as that shoot that will come out of the stump. He says this in the suffering servant passage. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground, a shoot out of the stump. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. So time out. After all the wonderful things God has told Isaiah about the Messiah, now he's saying we are not going to be attracted to the Messiah, that we will be prone to overlook him, we will be prone to reject him, and that he will know firsthand deep suffering and deep pain. I'm becoming very confused by this police sketch. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. So the Messiah will be pierced, the Messiah will be crushed, the Messiah will be wounded, wounded. And yet all of this will somehow be for our good? What sort of Messiah is this? He's going to endure hardship for our good? He will be tested by fire and we will be made new? Verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So now Isaiah summarizes our problem. Our problem is that we have gone astray. You and I have gone astray like sheep who wander away from our shepherd and trust ourselves instead. We've left God's way to follow our own. We have rebelled against God. We've turned our back on the source of life only to discover we're not truly alive. We are tainted we are tarnished, we are struggling, we are shattered. We look around and we realize we broke it and we don't have enough to buy it. We don't have enough to make amends to an infinite loving holy God and His creation. So what are we to do? And God's answer through Isaiah is, there's nothing to do. The Messiah will do it for you. The Messiah is a suffering servant, a wounded champion, and by those wounds you will be healed. The Messiah will willingly pay your debt, willingly die your death, willingly withstand your refinement. The Messiah will come to symbolize each and every one of us so that our rebellion can be both judged and forgiven, so that our rebellion can be both judged and forgiven. And then the Messiah will extend to us God's mercy forever. He was oppressed and afflicted, 
yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah, ever the faithful prophet, recorded this strange sketch of the Messiah. Centuries later, along the eastern coast of Africa, a man was born. He was very smart. He was groomed for a position in the queen's court. That calling came at a price because he was made a eunuch. Now, that changes your hormones, that changes your features, and people began to view him with suspicion. And yet, responding to a deep hunger inside of himself, this man journeyed to Jerusalem to the temple. The temple had been rebuilt after the exile. And so this man from the eastern coast of Africa journeyed to the temple. He's returning from his trip. He's returning to his African home when a man runs up to his chariot. This man is named Philip. He is a follower of a guy named Jesus. And Philip has an unshakable sense he's supposed to come and speak with his eunuch. This is when Philip notices that the eunuch is reading a scroll that has a book of the Bible on it. And Philip asks him, do you understand what you are reading? Acts chapter 8. How can I, the eunuch said, unless someone explains it to me? Now, the African eunuch has just been at the temple in which the Scripture tells us that there were religious... The Christians gathered there day in and day out. This man has just been at the temple and could find no one who would answer his question about God. This is sort of where I get my point. I think people viewed him with suspicion. And so the eunuch, who is far more learned than Philip, read these words from the scroll. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? The eunuch is dying to know. Philip said, well, yeah, the sketch is a little strange, but once you see the guy it's talking about, it'll make a lot more sense. And so using Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant passage, Philip shares with this Ethiopian the good news about Jesus, how he was born a baby, but proclaimed himself to be God and as fully human and fully God. He preached a message of turning to God, of trusting God that he never turned away from his mission of opening God's family up to every struggling and shattered person who would receive God's embrace, and how the religious and the Roman leaders had conspired together to kill him, to crucify him, to pierce him, to wound him, to crush him, and the hope he brought so many. But at at his death, upon his death, the curtain in the temple had torn, and it had actually torn from the top down, symbolizing that Jesus' death had fully and finally removed any barrier that would keep us from being reconciled to God. And then on that third day, the crucified Jesus resurrected. 
He inaugurated an eternal kingdom, which He leads from an eternal throne. Dead people cannot lead eternal kingdoms on eternal thrones, but resurrected people can. And so Philip added that there is always room for one more Ethiopian eunuch in this kingdom. That's good news. And the African intellectual realized he was getting swept up in something much bigger than himself. His heart was being flooded by wonder, flooded by hope, and opening up to this Jesus, this Messiah, this Christ. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. He wanted to join in God's eternal kingdom. And so we learned that as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? Great question. So Philip baptized the eunuch there. And many Christians on the eastern coast of Africa, even today, will point to the eunuch as the first one who brought them the good news of Jesus the Christ. God knows what He's doing. Even when there's only an itty-bitty amount of hope. Even when there's only the promise that one day a shoot will come out of the stump. You and I are getting swept up in something much bigger than we realize. Because God's plans and God's promises press on. And they culminate in Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Whatever you're going through today, you don't walk alone. And you don't have to put the weight of the world on your shoulders. Because Jesus has already done that. He did it for you. He did it for me. Remember that. He did it for me. Trust your life. Trust every person in it. Trust every part of it into the hands of Jesus the Christ. I don't really have an ending question today. I tried to come up with one. I couldn't come up with one. So what I simply want to do is remind you about this Christ, this Messiah. And what we see so clearly about him today, what the African eunuch saw so clearly about the Messiah, after he'd been to the temple and could not find a person who would answer his question about God. And yet Philip welcomed him into God's family. We remember this about the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What do you face that is greater than him? What stump can he not bring new life from? Why keep him at arm's length? Why, why not surrender? Is there any reason you should not celebrate your baptism? I will admit this is not the most practical sermon of all time. But this is a sermon about who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. And because of Him, there is always reason for hope. Even if it just seems itty-bitty. And that there is always room for one more bruised reed. Always room for one more smoldering wick. Always room for one more struggling person in His eternal kingdom. 
just because you're going through the not good, hard, good cycle, that doesn't mean God has abandoned you. Remember what Isaiah said about the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In the same way that the eunuch was flooded by wonder and hope as he realized he was getting caught up in something far bigger than himself. I pray that you and I will be overcome by wonder and hope as we too realize that by God's grace we are getting caught up in something far bigger than ourselves. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you for each person in our church family. I thank you for the gifts that they bring. I thank you for their rough edges that will teach all of us how to be more loving. Lord, we do find ourselves in the midst of that cycle Isaiah described, tarnished, refined, new, not good, hard, good. And yet we realize you have led your people through that cycle for thousands of years. And you have sustained your people with wonder, with hope, ultimately with Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray for us that you will sustain us. And Lord, that even if our hearts are just a little itty bit open to it, that we will receive from you wonder, that we will receive from you hope, ultimately that we will receive in your greatest gift of Jesus. Lord, even if we're not 100% sure, you do amazing work through the itty-bitty. So take our itty-bitty amount of faith and do your amazing work with it. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, as we stand and worship together, let me remind those of y'all in the gym, if you would hope to give or submit a prayer request as part of your worship, you can do that at the basket right as you exit the gym door. And then online, there's a little pinned post about how you can uh, give or submit a prayer request as part of worship. But let's stand. Let's worship together.